Welcome to the Cocktail Guru Podcast. A show about food, drink, and entertainment. With a tight focus on the good life. And all things delicious, luxurious, and fun. I'm Jonathan Pogash, bartender, author, and the host of Cocktails the Grand Tour. And I'm Jeffrey Pogash, wine and spirits professional, author, insatiable collector of culinary ephemera, and so people tell me, an engaging raconteur. And my dad. Okay, here we go. Um, we are on our next episode of the Cocktail Guru podcast. This is very exciting. Um, are you excited, Dad? I am so excited because of our guest, our special guest, and because of this wonderful champagne that we have to taste before we get to our guest. It's Krug, what is it that you're drinking? It's oh. Krug Grande Cuvée 169th edition. And I'm oh going my to- goodness. I'm going to pour it in my glass right now, and I want to tell you something very important. This brings back incredible memories for me, because I first encountered Krug in 1972 when I was living in Paris as a student. I walked into a store, and I decided to buy a bottle of champagne, the very first bottle I ever bought, ever in my life with my own money, was Krug. Wow. Yes, and it was Krug Krug vintage champagne. And now this brings back memories because we have the Grand Cuvée, which is an incredible bottling from Krug. It's uh I'm going to taste it in a second. It's got it's made up of 146 individual wines and 11 vintages are represented. The base vintage is 2013. And there are vintages that go from the year 2000 until 2013. It's just incredible. And of course, the reason this is such a wonderful champagne is because the first fermentation of Krug is in oak casks. I'm going to taste this right now. This is a toast to our uh, newly minted podcast, Dad. Mm. The nose is incredible. You know, there's this quality in a champagne called brioche, and it's only in great champagnes that have some age to them. And that's what I'm getting here from Krug. Beautiful. Great bubbles. Great, uh, lively bubbles here. And this just coats the mouth with incredibly rich and complex flavors. Krug Grand Cuvée, 169th edition. It's just incredible. Delicious bottle. Okay, let's bring on our guest. How about that? That would be fantastic. And a great honor and pleasure for me to introduce Camille Broderick Rodier, who happens to be an old but young friend of mine and a former colleague at Moet Hennessy, USA. And though our paths do not cross that often, she does remain a friend. We stay in touch. And I have followed Camille's career since we met approximately 16 years ago. It's been that long. And I followed her from her marketing of wines and spirits to her fabulous radio show called Camille's Dummy Hour on Nantucket Public Radio, of which I am a tremendous fan, of course. And I have to mention that when we worked together, I often said to Camille that she was my partner in all crimes gastronomic. And we will get into that a little later. I mention that because Camille's show focuses on food, 
wine, spirits, restaurants, and the people behind them. And let's not forget travel, because her show has taken us to different parts of the world in her quest to discover the very best that life has to offer. Welcome, Camille. Hello. Thank you for having me. What an intro. <laughs> I know. This is, Dad wrote a book um, that he is oh, dedicating to you. He's a writer at the, at the end of the day. Yes, he is. Well, it's thank true. you. It's a pleasure to be with both father and son. Very, very wonderful people and very spirited people. Thank you, Camille. <laughs> well, it's just the beginning because we have so much to talk about, not just your radio show, but also your company called Juharo Productions, which creates beautiful documentary videos. And before before we get into that, I, I'd like to say that we begin each episode, Camille, by asking our guests their favorite beverages, um, more specifically the Stranded on a Desert Island drink. So do you have uh, a Stranded on a Desert Island drink? I'm going to go to my, my one and truly only answer is champagne. I just can't get away from that. Um, it kind of hits the morning, noon, and night criteria, you know, the sad criteria, the happy criteria, the survival <laughs> criteria. Um, yes, I, th- I, think, uh, I think that would be my, my desert island beverage of choice. How did I know you were going to say that? I yeah. knew you were going to say champagne. You guys have known each other yeah. for a little while. We, yes, and we've had me. many yeah, a glass of champagne yeah. together. <laughs> um, well, you you have you've been involved in the industry for quite some time, and since uh, I think it's since you were a teenager, I hear is that is that right? Yes, my first job. I don't even think I was legal to be working. Uh, I was a little <laughs> bus girl at a um, little cafe that my mom was cooking at and my sisters were waiting tables at. Um, and then, uh, and then I worked at an ice cream shop and then I was a host and then I was a waitress and a bartender and it goes on and on and on. (laughs) And, and then you got to, and I think maybe you were slightly older, you got to Nantucket and you started working at the famous wall when it in. Yes. Um, so as we all know, life, um, one thing in life, one thing leads to the next, um, especially in your career. And there are these moments that just keep pivoting you and turning you. And, uh, I was actually in Los Angeles before I went to Nantucket, but, um, I was working on Cape Cod at a place called Chatham Bars Inn. And that was my first, uh, managerial job out of college. I thought I was just going to wait tables, but then they offered me a management job and I took it on the spot always learned from that lesson to maybe think on a job proposal overnight, but I, I took the job <laughs> on the spot and, uh, and that sort of just started my career. And I had, um, worked at, um, a place called radius in Boston after that, um, which was, um, voted one of the top 20 restaurants in the country by gourmet magazine when that was still in publication, when I was, um, working there. And that was, I always call that part of my career, sort of the boot camp of uh, my training, um, it was very intense, about two and a half years, but a very intense, amazing training and fine dining and uh, service. And then, um, and then I had gone to Los Angeles and worked out there. And then um, someone had told me about the Wawinit, and I thought that would be a dream job to work out on Nantucket. And um, and um, I ended up getting the job as um, the f- uh, sommelier there, my first sommelier position. 
You see, I learned something. I thought you started at the Wall Winnet before okay. Los Angeles. Yeah, oh, no. Well, okay. well, when it was um, the trajectory in my wine career, I right. think that's really the trajectory right. in my wine career. But going back to LA, you were at L'Hermitage, mm-hmm. great, great hotel. And you were at the Beverly Hills Hotel in the Polo Lounge as a bartender. Yeah. And I don't think you know this story either, Jeffrey. I've saved all my, my good stories for the show. <laughs> Uh, after I, after 16 years, you've oh, saved the story. Thank I, you. I was actually offered the position to open the standard in downtown LA. And, um, and I remember I accepted the position, but this is, I was in my early twenties, so I didn't really get a contract. And I'm sure we all remember those days where you kind of <laughs> make moves, but don't get it in writing. And so I sold my car, had my ticket to Los Angeles. And, uh, they said, uh, they called me when I was working at my other job and, um, they said, I'm sorry, uh, Camille, uh, but however, we've given the job to somebody else. And I remember clearly thinking, oh, goodness, what am I going to say? And, and I just said, well, uh, do you typically give jobs to people and then take them away? <laughs> and they said, <laughs> they said, no, but this person was close, could start right away. And I said, well, I hope they do as good of a job as I would have. And I hung up the phone and I was upset and had no idea what to do. And I called one of my best friends from college and uh, she said, Camille, maybe you should just go. Um, I was able to stay with my family. I had some relatives out there. And she said, why don't you just go and you may regret not going, but you'll never regret going. And in other words, just trying, just seeing what you can do out there. I had always wanted to live out there on the West Coast. And um, and I went out there and I applied to three of the five star five diamond hotels within Beverly Hills. And I was, um, I got the job at two of them. So I worked part-time at two of the hotels in Beverly Hills as a server and, uh, had quite an experience out there for about a year. Wow. And it's, it's funny because my wife, Megan was also out in LA working in restaurants. Um, and I, I've heard stories of the restaurant industry in LA and it's, uh, I mean, probably not to uh, probably pretty similar to New York working in restaurants. Um, but, uh, it was probably quite an experience. It was, it was, um, I'll tell, I'll say what Los Angeles has an incredible food scene. They were, um, way ahead in the farm to table movement. Um, I'd say almost even more than New York was to some degree because of Alice Waters and just the, the sort of the more, um, not hippie vibe, but, um, the more natural vibe and health, healthy lifestyle. And, so I love the food out there. It was great. And working in the restaurants was, um, was awesome. It was uh, no question. There were a lot of celebrities working in those hotels. I, I, I wasn't starstruck after working there anymore. Um, I waited on everybody from Denzel Washington to Angelina Jolie to Whitney Houston to, <laughs> to wow. um, yeah, the list just kind of goes on to, you know, Saudi princes and, um, but, um, it was, it was quite an experience. It was very fun. Very fun. But from, but we missed something important here, Camille, because from what I understand, you were the first female bartender at the Polo yeah, Lounge. I, I, I was, that's what they said. That's what the other, that's what the other older male bartenders told me. They turned to me <laughs> and they, they said, there's never been a female bartender behind here. And that's what they said behind the bar, wow. in other words. Wow. And they were in as, as in shock as I was. <laughs> so 
That's the story. But um, yeah, the Polo, the Beverly Hills Hotel is a icon. Um, what a establishment that place is. I mean, it has an, an underground railroad system of kitchens and kosher kitchens, and um, it's it's wild. It's very unique uh, place and um, very historic. It was very. I felt honored to work there and to be in those walls. It was very cool. Wow! But now you have evolved, and now you are in video documentary production. Yes. How did that come to be? I don't know, but it's incredible. It's incredible. You're a partner and producer with your husband, Julian, at uh, Joharo Productions. So um, leaping forward, I guess, 20 years or so, um, I met my husband and Funny enough, I did envision um, my partner in life to be somebody sort of in my industry um, or working together in some capacity. And um, I probably thought it would be somebody in the restaurant scene or in the wine world. But um, I ended up meeting my husband um, when I was working an event and he was doing video and I was um, running the the party and we met. And uh, since the day we met, we talked about working together and working on projects together. And, um, so fast forward, we, five years, we've been married and, um, have been running Juharo Productions and we, um, do video production for branding, marketing, uh, social needs for great brands. And, um, but the wine is kind of what started us. We did a lot of wine videos from the beginning. Well, Juharo is gaining recognition very quickly. And one of the reasons is the the documentary that you produced called A Nebbiolo Story, which took first place, the Grand Award, in the very prestigious Wine Spectator video competition. That is incredible. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't even our idea to submit the video. Um, I, I was working... Uh, at um, a great little farm to table cafe, I had opened this place um, called Saltbox Kitchen in Concord, Massachusetts. And uh, during the time, I had met some great wine um, salesmen, and he knew they were representing uh, GD Vira, which is a great uh, Barolo producer, a great family. And he said, "If you want to come meet him um, someday, you're welcome to come meet him. He's in he's in town." And I said, "Great!" And so I met him in the basement of. <laughs> an importing business like in Framingham or some it was just a very random meeting and we just met and connected immediately he's um the Italians as we all know have very have a lot of charisma but the the Viras are very special people and when you're with them you just kind of fall in love with them um I think that's common with a lot of winemakers um but they he was great and he invited my husband and I out to film them um and to shoot some some footage and to just go out there and we did exactly that and we produced a, a video and we shared it with them and um and they said let's submit it to Wine Spectator and we did and we won <laughs> we we were we were thrilled yeah I also wanted to say that uh, a Nebbiolo story is an absolutely stunning visual documentary. I mean, visually, it is stunning. It's incredible. Well, thank you. It's beautiful. Thanks, Jeffrey. And I I know you have much more to come. And I did want to ask you about the newest project that you have going. And I didn't want to um, mention the name. I wanted you to talk about it because the subject is near and dear to my heart as it is to yours, because we have had much experience 
together with this particular product. Yes, we um, we had come across uh, an interesting company during our work together, uh, my my partner and husband Julian and I, and so we. Um, it's called, they're called the American Truffle Company. And it was a truffle company that is trying to grow domestic truffles um, here in the US. And there was a story on them in the New York Times. And I thought, we got to, we have to talk to these people. Um, I think it's a fascinating story. And a lot of our work um, is video, but it's, it's storytelling, it evokes a lot of um, emotion and excitement and, um, and documentary style. And so, we reached out to them and we ended up talking to them and working with them. And, um, fast forward a year or two, we, we saw that there wasn't a beautiful story about truffles. And, um, these are the non chocolate truffles. These are the underground savory, (laughs) delicious, one of the highest priced goods, um, besides drugs, besides drugs on the market, um, and edible drugs. Um, so it's, uh, wait, edibles. Yeah. Well, well, I'm sorry. We're not talking about edibles. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, so we started telling the story and we have gone to France and Italy several times and um, out in California and have interviewed um, many people and have in the final edits of a documentary called Truffle Rush. And it's a story, an educational piece uh about truffles and the story of um, how they have sort of evolved over time into our our modern era of fine cuisine. Now, you were in the Piedmont when you did your Nebbiolo story documentary. Yes. And Piedmont, more specifically the town of Alba, is the truffle capital of the world. Yes. But I wanted to add the white truffle capital of the world. And there's other parts that are, you know, as we learn, uh, there's white truffles around Italy as well. There's still some in Tuscany. And then um, there's a lot of white truffle that grow um, in Croatia and some other parts of Eastern Europe. And then they actually ship them through Italy. um, And then they get the stamp of Italy, uh, white truffles. Um, So there's a lot, there's a lot behind the scenes in the truffle world. Oh, that's sneaky. (laughs) Now in California... Did you find mostly black truffles? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mostly um, black truffles. We do not grow white truffles anywhere else in, besides th- those places we mentioned. Um, you can farm black truffles, um, but the white truffles um, are sort of the, the whole, the trinity, right, of, of the truffle world. Hearing about this documentary reminds me of things that are on such channels as Netflix? Is this something that is kind of, what, what is the end goal of the, uh, of the project? Is it to, to kind of be on a, on a station like Netflix or Amazon or something like oh, that? Sure. Who doesn't want that? Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking for a platform. I think first we'll, we'll finish, um, the final edits and, and then send it, uh, submit it to some festivals and see what happens. Uh, the good thing is that, and then hopefully people will want to pick it up or, um, we've never really done this circuit or this sort of process before, so it'll be exciting and we'll, I'm sure we'll learn a lot. But what's great is that there is um, there was a great truffle movie that just came out recently um, that Sony Pictures has produced. And um, so I think the world is learning more about them and maybe more interested in them. So we're hoping that there there might be you know more of a demand for knowledge of, of these awesome um, mushrooms. 
And then the, if you haven't heard or seen the previews for Pig with Nicolas Cage, which is another truffle movie. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Just came yes. Out. Um, kind of one of a kind, very, very interesting story. It's about, um, a chef who lives in Oregon and his truffle pig, um, has been kidnapped. Um, quite an interesting plot. I don't know anyone who doesn't love Nicolas Cage, but I, <laughs> I think he's great and, um, I'm excited to watch it. But again, another truffle movie. I think the more That's truffle so movies, the better. And all this talk about truffles. Makes me leads, hungry. It makes me hungry and leads well, at least me you to, get the, to drink Krug. Well, I do, and I'm going to take another sip because you're talking <laughs> about truffles. And I wanted to mention the fact that you and I had the opportunity to have several, if not quite a few, truffle lunches and dinners. Yes, my together. first truffle, I think, was with you, Jeffrey Pogash. Yes, because we, we were hosting journalists, and that was our job. This wasn't just for fun. We had the job of hosting and entertaining journalists. And we just had to do truffle and champagne lunches and dinners with them. Right. It's torture. It's torturous. How do you explain, (laughs) how do you explain to people that what, what we were doing and what we do is work when you, when you do to the, you know, dad, I think it's a good question for dad. Don't you get people like, I, well, you're, pe- you're, not, yes. you're not working. Come on. People, people used to ask me what I did for a living. And I would say I eat and drink for a living. And that is true. And then I explained exactly what I did. They said, oh, yes, okay, of course. But they also thought I was the, had the best job in the world. Are, are you running a switchboard over there, Dad? What is... Uh, I mean... What is what is going on over there? No, no, no. It's all all fixed. It's all those journalists wanting it's to. All fixed. Our, our cocktail guru, our cocktail guru phones are are off the hook. Yes, it's because we're so popular and people are trying to contact us. People, this is not a live call in show, but maybe people think uh, it is. Well, maybe it should be. <laughs> so oh, I I always ask, or we like to ask about memorable meals. So I don't know if you have any in mind other than the ones we talked about just now. I remember that our meals, several of them were at Del Posto in Manhattan, the great Italian restaurant. And another, at least one other was at Le Cirque restaurant. But I think one of the best meals I had with you, Jeffrey, was the Krug lunch at, um, the Asian restaurant in um, Columbus Circle. Oh, yes, Masa. 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 Yes. Oh, that was that was incredible. Yes. Oh, that I was, remember that place. Yeah, yeah, that was like a very small, most one of the most expensive uh, Japanese sushi restaurants in the country. But it was yes. it was extraordinary. But what what made that lunch so unique is that that was one of the when you talk about the best meals of your life or the best lunches, there is always something that um, there's more than one memory, right? It's more than just the picture. It's more than just the taste of the food. I, at least for me, it was something that really was a was a revelation, right? Something was ex- revealed to you. Something came to you, or something was an experience that you had never had before or after. Right. Um, yes. And, yes. And with that meal, that was when I realized how wine, especially champagne 
we had Krug with every single course and it was, I never realized how much you can go back to a wine and just have all of them go with everything, <laughs> with everything. It was, it really was a lesson on champagne and food and how things can pair. And when something's an exceptional pairing, it can just sit in the glass. You can go back to it. You can try it with other things and it's just continuously delicious and, and a wonderful pairing. And those meals were with Olivier Krug. He was there. This was in honor of Olivier. I know. And Krug. I think one, I think it was on my birthday, which even made it more special. Yes. It happened to be on my birthday, but I think one of the most impressive meals of my life, that's memorable meals. Um, Wow. I think it was in Italy. Um, my, it was when we were on our first mission to Italy, going to visit, um, GD Vira. And, uh, I visited my old friend, Federico Toretto, who was one of my guests mm. on my show. And Jeffrey, you've worked with Federico and he is also another Barolo producer and they own a, uh, a three-star Michelin restaurant, Piazza Duomo. And Julian and I went there for lunch just to say hello and have lunch. And we knew it was a nice place. We knew it would be a course dinner, a course lunch. We were prepared for that, knowing the caliber and the high level of service that it was. And I'm not going to lie, we were a little hungover. And we were (laughs) driving back from the mountains, going through the windy roads. Finally arrived there. I think I changed into a dress in the parking lot. And we walked into Piazza Duomo. We sat there and had about 14 different courses for lunch. And my husband in- filmed the whole thing. And um, we got up from the table and he, Federico came out and he said the whole lunch was on him. And I was floored because I didn't know. I was floored of thinking how much lunch was going to be to begin with because I didn't think it was going to be that many courses. And then when he said the whole lunch was on him, I was blown away. And um and- it was an extraordinary experience. The room at Piazza Duomo is just, just sitting there makes you feel special. I have not had the pleasure of being there, but I would love to go one day. And I'm sure you had some great Barolos along with that lunch. Yeah. There was wines every course. Yeah. There was, it was an extraordinary meal. Definitely something that only comes around once in a lifetime. Yeah. And you had some really extraordinary guests on your radio show. Over the years, it was over six seasons. That's incredible for a I show. I can believe it. I know. It yeah. Was, yeah I, it, all for time, fun. We did it all just for pure, pure, time, pure joy. Time flies. Time flies. Yeah. yeah. You you had Chef Jacques Pépin as a guest. You had Adam Platt. Uh, you had Anna Maria Ponzi. You had Moreau, the great Chablis wine producer. And Ponzi, Ponzi from uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, Ponzi Vineyards. Alicia Antonori from Italy, of course. Um, and you had, most interestingly, a Nantucket beekeeper who happened to be Russian. <laughs> what was that all about? One of my favorite shows. Well, so I started the show... Um, after I left New York City and I was uh, just working on Nantucket again, I returned to the Wall Winnet to fill in and help out. Um, I would return there and they, they, they're just a great, um, great friends. And I was listening to the local radio station there and I just thought there's such an awesome concentration of food and wine there that I thought it was worthy of talking about. And so I called up the local station there and um, 
and I pitched my idea of doing a food and wine Epicurean show. And they had just acquired the NPR station and they said, we like your idea. Let's do a couple test shows and let's go for it. And we did and they liked it. And, um, yeah, six years later, um, I was still doing it. So it was, it was really fun. And there were just so many great opportunities to reconnect with people that I've worked with. And, um, it kind of kept me in touch with uh, my passion for food and wine a lot when, um, as I was still growing the production company with my husband. Wow. And I have listened to every show, by the way. I, I am your number one fan. I mean, I'm honored. I'm honored. (laughs) Can we get him? Can we get him a Juharo Productions mug? (laughs) Juharo Productions. It's in the mail. All the swags in the mail. Yes, thank you. I contributed some money to my local New York City NPR station, and they sent me a mug. And and the the mug says it's a great mug. It says unmute yourself. Unmute yourself. Wow. Yeah. This is uh, okay. The the cocktail guru unmuted. Unmuted. Um, That's right. Will be a, a, a specific episode where it's nothing but expletives from my dad. <laughs> the cocktail guru unleashed. Unleashed. Yes. See, as you um, two know, you've started your own show, and you are behind. You are learning what it's like to host people and talk to people, but it wasn't too far of a stretch coming from a hospitality background to be um, a host of a show. I didn't have a radio background. However, it was exciting for me to talk to these people and to learn about them and talk to them. And um, it became just a new passion, which surprisingly led into my career now with my husband and doing interviews and documentary stuff and being able to have that dialogue and understand where the story is and what makes people want to talk and share and, 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 bring out their good stories. It's it's really special. And, and we're so thankful that we've um, had you on the show and that we've listened to these stories and that you've been able to reconnect with my dad, who's your number one fan, and that you are one of our early uh, guests on our podcast. So um, we'd like to thank you very, very much, Camille. It's my pleasure. I will... I would love to be a guest again and hopefully we can, um, we can imbibe together and, <laughs> and I wish you the best of luck in your new venture as well. It's always exciting to start something new. Thank you, Camille. We will definitely imbibe Krug champagne the next time you're with us I, together. You, that's a promise. You, we will, like, can, okay. can we also invite the cricket? Can the cricket yeah. come too? <laughs> As long as he doesn't, as long as he doesn't drink much. Cricket party. Yeah. No, I won't. No, no. He'll be the driver. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Camille. Thank you guys. Cheers. You're welcome. Cheers. That does it for today's show. To learn more about future guests, visit thecocktailguru.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The Cocktail Guru podcast is produced by First Real Entertainment and distributed by Eats Drinks TV, a service of the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.